Hi listeners, Dr. Brianna Stubbs here. I run our research efforts at Human, with my focus being on ketone metabolism and the interventions that we can implement to achieve peak physical and mental performance. With the World Cup now over, we're all looking for the next big event to cheer on our favorite team and players in pursuit of becoming the best of the best. What better event to fill that hole than another prestigious competition currently underway, the Tour de France? This is a tense three-week-long cycling race between a total of 176 riders covering more than 2,000 miles. It truly is one of the greatest athletic tests in all sports. Here's a fun fact. The average cyclist burns about 126,000 calories over the course of the race, which is about 40 pounds of food. There's a great deal of history here, with this year being the 105th race. With any world-class competition that spans decades, you end up seeing continued innovation to not only keep up with the times, but also to push the limits of competitors. The Tour de France is a textbook example of this. In this episode of The Human Podcast, I'll be giving you all a glimpse of the physical, software, and nutritional innovations that have transformed the race into what it is today. Well, the peloton upping the tempo in the final kilometers, overtaking Grulier with 6K to go, and then it was over to the sprinters' teams. Philippe Gilbert having a go, but he was quickly caught. Sagan launching his sprint early. Greipel involved in a tussle with Gaviria, but for the second day running, it was Dylan Grunewagen who simply had too much in the tank. Let's set the scene in the early 1900s. Picture a scene in black and white with men in overcoats and hats headed to the pub after work to smoke and drink. Now, what if I told you that a beer and a smoke is exactly how the best of the best cyclists would prepare for the most gruelling race of their lives? They drink beer or wine to apparently boost their energy and smoke cigarettes to open their lungs. Incredible given what we know today, right? Cheating was also rampant. There were reports of riders taking trains to cover distance, water bottles being filled with lead for downhill speed, and gangs were even sent to attack competitors with sticks. That's not really fair play. All of this is happening on unpaved roads with no helmets and under the cover of darkness, with moonlight as their only guide and the stars as the only spectators. Whilst there are some practices from the early races that raise eyebrows, one has to admire the raw, primal power of the human spirit these early Tour de France cyclists had to even cross the finish line. Now, let's move on to the technical innovations that have occurred as the Tour grew into the race we see today. Where better to start than the most central piece of equipment, the bicycle? Modern bicycles weigh in at about 17 pounds give or take a few grams, depending on how expensive the components you have. The bike that first won the Tour de France in 1903 weighed in at a hefty 40 pounds, over twice as much. Why is that? The frame was made out of steel, which is far heavier. And also the rims of the wheels were made out of wood. Archaic, sure, but the bike did also debut its own innovation at the time toe clips, which have actually evolved since into clip-on shoes. From the very beginning, the Tour was a testing ground for evolution in bicycle tech. There's some amazing new aero tech here at the Tour de France, and one of my favourites is right here. We're going to kick things off with the new Orbea Orca Aero. Completely new, in fact. It's going to be launched on stage three of the Tour de France. A decade later, in 1914, drop handlebars were introduced to improve aerodynamics and enable a wider variety of hand positions, which is vital when you're going to sit on the bike for seven or eight hours a day. At the time, the bikes only operated with a single gear, essentially meaning one single speed. Anyone who's tried to ride a bike up a hill lately can probably empathize here, but imagine trying to ride up the Alps with just one gear. 
In the 1930s, multiple gear freewheels made an appearance, finally giving riders the ability to switch gears according to the terrain. However, there was a catch. Riders had to dismount the bike and reposition the chain manually to switch gears. So it was a bit of a toss-up. Is it worth stopping to change gears for this stretch of more uphill road or best just to power through at the current gear? So, once we have gears and you can change them as you ride, what next? Arguably, the most game-changing innovation of recent years came in the early 90s, when a new material became the weapon of choice when making racing bicycles, carbon fibre. Most people will be familiar with it from the aerospace industry. Daniel Healy, who has worked as the head sports scientist of some of the most prestigious cycling teams on the circuit, said, and I quote, In the early 1990s, there was a wholesale shift in bicycle frame materials from steel to carbon fibre. In fact, the bicycle industry adopted carbon fibre en masse a long time before the automotive industry. The Tour de France is where, year after year, the flexibility and beautiful design afforded by carbon fibre was showcased. End quote. There was also experimentation with other materials to get bicycles out of the steel era, such as titanium and aluminium. Forgive the British pronunciation there. Carbon fibre reigned king thanks to its significantly lighter weight, vibration dampening qualities, impact resistance, and also stability of the material to natural environmental factors such as riding in the rain. In fact, carbon fibre bikes started getting so advanced that the world governing body for cycling, the UCI, had to step in to regulate, requiring that racing bicycles could not weigh below 15 pounds. With this regulation halting the race to make the lightest bike, innovation became focused on aerodynamics. Things like deep section wheels, which means less shallow rims, closely fitted clothing for the riders, and teardrop helmets make small differences at the elite level. Although, I imagine that you've seen some riders out in your area with a lot of this fancy aero kit. Another innovation that's occurred in the last 10 years is the introduction of electric gear shifting, which replaced manual gear shifting, which most of you will be familiar with. The rationale here is that it makes it faster to switch between gears. However, its introduction has not been without complications. Early on in the introduction of electric gears, there were malfunctions in competition, most famously in 2013, where Bradley Wiggins's bike failed in a final climb in the Tour de France. However, most of these problems have now been overcome, and virtually all of the riders in the peloton will be using electric gear shifting this year in the Tour de France. So hopefully we've got a little bit of an overview now of the hardware, let's just say, of the bicycle racing industry. So what about software? So we've spent some time now talking about the evolution of the bicycle. What about the evolution of the technology that supported human performance? As you probably already know, we here at Human are believers in using the state-of-the-art biometric data and tracking to effectively improve specific areas of performance and health. One tool that's allowed us to dissect riders' performance in much more detail than ever previously possible is the power meter. These started off as a lab-only tool where a rider would have to come off the road in order to do a specific power test and understand their physiology. But now you can buy power meters that attach to the bike frame or are built into pedals or cranks. And these accurately measure torque and angular velocity to calculate your power output constantly during a ride. Power meters became ubiquitous at around about the same time as carbon fiber and complement and in some ways surpassed heart rate metrics in providing a deep look at the intensity of intervals and the necessary physical demand on the rider. So now we have an explosion of data, but what's missing here? Software to organize it all. 
In 2003, Cycling Peaks was developed to analyze power meter data, and this is key, make the data actionable for the riders and their coaches. The software inspired other numerous open source programs for power meter data analysis and analytical tools. With the newfound tools for easy data collection leading to an abundance of rider data, the training regimes began to focus less on simple accumulation of volume and instead on a specific structured effort tailored to complement the strengths and weaknesses of an individual rider. Using data to take a personalized approach to training and racing has become the gold standard in elite cycling. Besides innovation in bike tech and performance data collection and analysis, there's another area we have yet to cover. My favorite topic, fueling with food. As I mentioned, the first Tour de France riders fueled up on alcohol and chocolate, but now you're more likely to find that in the basket of a beach cruiser following the race. One funny tidbit is in the 1935 race, the entire peloton stopped to drink with locals during the 17th stage, and one rider, Julien Moinou, skipped the beer and won the whole stage. However, our understanding of nutrition has moved on leaps and bounds. With such vast energy demands during the race, we now know that it's crucial for riders to make sure that they pay attention to the details of the type and timing of food that they eat on the bike. Without going too deep down the rabbit hole of metabolism, as I'm often wont to do, food contains a mixture of carbs, fats, and protein. For the cyclists, they're burning mainly fat and carbs to keep them going. The harder that they work, the more carbs that they burn. The gut breaks down the complex carbohydrates in food into simple sugars. And then the cells use sugars to make a molecule called ATP, which provides energy for muscle contraction. The focus for the riders on the bike is to consume as much carbs as their bodies can absorb and burn, which is about 60 grams per hour. Definitely not keto. They use carb gels, bars, and energy drinks that contain more than one type of carbohydrate called multiple transportable carbohydrates so that they really, really maximize the amount of energy that they get into their system. Because the work is so intense, it's not possible to eat as much as they burn. So they also use the stored carbohydrate inside their muscles, which is called glycogen. Once muscle glycogen runs out, riders become exhausted. So they want to avoid this at all costs. In order to delay the point where glycogen runs out, some riders train with low carbohydrate availability in order to force their bodies to get better at burning fat. This might be either going out for their morning ride without breakfast or following a full-blown keto diet. Another common practice is carb loading, where riders deplete and then overconsume carbohydrate in the days before the race, trying to maximize the amount of glycogen stored. So let's get back to the history lesson. Carb loading really dominated the 70s and 80s. A 1988 study by the International Journal of Sports Medicine followed the food consumption of five tour riders and determined that they, on average, consumed over 5,000 calories daily. 61% of these calories were from carbs. The major source of these calories were, unfortunately, cakes eaten during the race. Riders were even drinking Coca-Cola for recovery. I could get on board with that. It wasn't until the 90s that a more thoughtful approach to nutrition became widespread. The 7-Eleven team, ironically, was the first to bring a chef on tour to make sure the food was high quality. Previously, riders staying at hotels along the course had to make do with whatever was on offer at the buffet, often bread, meat and pasta. Today, nutrition is still center stage as the riders progress through the event. So how does my personal favorite topic, ketosis, fit in? There has been an uptick in interest in using low-carb approaches to boost fat burning and get more energy from ketones, with riders like Chris Froome 
reportedly seeing benefits from doing periods of training using a low carb, high fat diet. However, if we're honest, there's not much scientific evidence that actually staying on the ketogenic diet long term can boost elite performance, as it looks like top end sprinting ability often suffers whilst on the ketogenic diet, meaning that even if a rider can get to the foot of a mountain in good shape, they don't necessarily have the same capacity to sprint up and win the stage. It's always been somewhat of a trade-off between carb burning and burning fat in ketones. And all of this is changing now with the introduction of the world's first commercially available ketone ester, human ketone. Seven teams participating in this year's Tour de France are being powered by our ketone ester. Whilst under development over at Oxford University, the ketone ester was confirmed to be compliant with the policies of the World Anti-Doping Agency, which is especially important given that the tour is notorious for widespread doping controversy. What I think is most exciting about human ketone is that it gives us the ability to have full carbohydrate stores and also tap into extra energy source from ketones. My personal experience of using it and that of a lot of the other athletes that we've been working with at this stage is that you get this extra sense of energy, like you're burning something from a whole other fuel tank. This makes sense with the physiological picture of what's going on under the hood. After drinking human ketone, the body is able to get some of its energy from the ketones in the drink, meaning that you don't have to burn as much glycogen and you don't use as much carbohydrates to make lactic acid. All of these are things that you can feel as an athlete, extending your aerobic performance and making a given workload feel slightly easier. So if you want a chance to win a three-pack of human ketone and try it yourself, head over to go.hvmn.com forward slash podcast survey and spend a few minutes answering a few questions that will help us to make this podcast even better. Again, that is go.hvmn.com forward slash podcast survey. And you'll also find the link in the show notes. So there we have it, listeners. If you found this episode, which is sort of a diversion from our normal interview structure, informative or entertaining, please send us a note to podcast at hvmn.com. We appreciate all of your feedback and support. So until next time, stay safe and train hard.